Hi, I'm Ben. Glad you're here. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Seeing Jesus in the book of John, and we're in John chapter 16 now, um, where we pick up where Jesus begins to encourage, or he's in the middle of encouraging his disciples because he's telling them he's about to go away. And so chapters 14 through 17 are this passage where Jesus is giving what's called his final discourse um, before he goes to the cross. So it's an important, it's, it's kind of a vital thing. If you were having what you knew to be one of the last conversations that you were going to have with somebody that you loved, you would be intentional about your conversation, wouldn't you? If you as maybe the recipient of that conversation, you were understanding this is going to be one of the last conversations I have with somebody I love, you would be intentional about listening closely to what was being said, wouldn't you? I know I would. We are in the middle of, of an important passage. It's going to culminate next week um, when we hear John chapter 17 preach to us where Jesus gives what is called his high priestly prayer where he prays for his disciples, he prays for us, and we get an insight into how the Son of God intercedes for us and how the Holy Spirit, who prays according to the will of God, according to the Scripture, pray, intercedes for us even when we don't know how to pray. We see God's will in prayer. Here in John chapter 16, there's a focus on the person of the Holy Spirit himself. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about getting to know the Holy Spirit. The sermon series is Seeing Jesus. The chapter, we're going to focus on getting to know the Holy Spirit. When I was 16 years old, I took my first, I guess, real job, um, if you want to call it that. In, um, I was a drive through guy at Burger King. That was my first job. I still don't want to go into Burger King. I have been back, I've regretted it most times. Um, but that was my first job. And we had, I didn't know at the time there was such a thing as something called a mystery shopper. You know what a mystery shopper is? So somebody who comes through the drive-thru or somebody who comes into the, into the front there and they order food like any other customer, but they're there to evaluate you. They've got a checklist. And from the moment they get there, they are evaluating their experience. How friendly were the people? How quick did I get my food? Was the food good? Did the food have a hair in it? You know, were people, you know, was the, was the building up to par? Was it nasty? Was it clean? How was my experience from beginning to end? I don't know if you know this, but some churches use mystery shoppers too. Did you know that? There are actually people who, get, who are contracted to come in and be a guest except they're there evaluating. And the purpose of that is, I think it's not a bad idea actually, but the purpose of that is where people, we kind of as a congregation can get used to the same thing over and over every week until we start to develop blind spots. We don't notice that ratty, I'm not pointing, but we don't notice the ratty carpet wherever it is or the spot on the wall or we, we don't notice when somebody's maybe not as friendly as they could be. We're just used to our experience. We're used to it. It's part of what we do. And sometimes it takes fresh eyes to come in and say, actually, you could work on fill in the blank. I kind of feel like, for those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago um, and heard Dave Crandall preach on John chapter 14, I got a whiff of mystery shopper. I don't know about you. Do you remember the beginning of his sermon? I was, this actually intrigued me. He talked to us about 
as, as somebody who came into the community to plant a church, he talked to us about what we were like. Do you remember that? Did that strike a chord with anybody? Kind of talked to us what we were like as Henderson Villians. Actually, he didn't call us that, did he? Somebody noticed this. I know you did. He didn't say we were from Hendersonville. What did he say? He called us Northeast Nashville. Urgh. We're not Nashville. At least that's what we're told. When I moved here three and a half years ago, I made that same mistake. I, I, I didn't think it was a mistake. We all seemed to, you know, be the same kind of community. It was traffic everywhere. You know, where does one end and one begin? I didn't know. But I was told by several people, we are Hendersonville. We are Sumner County. Uh, I know at our church, we've got people from all over. We've got people from Portland to Mount Julia to Gallatin, White House, Greenbrier. So it's not just Hendersonville. But wherever you want to call yourself from, he started, he started giving us a few markers about what we're like as a community. It was fresh eyes. Ever since he preached that a couple of weeks ago, I remember he, remember he said he noticed when he went to Target or when he went to Kroger, he noticed there weren't any beat-up vehicles anywhere. Everybody's trying to put their best foot forward. Everybody's got a decent vehicle. Everybody's dressed up at least okay. You know, they're, they're not just putting their best foot forward, they're putting their best face forward. And he called it a shell. He said after living so long with people and dealing with people, as a psychologist, he's, he's noticed that behind that facade, behind that mask, there's a lot of loneliness and a lot of brokenness and a lot of futility and a lot of frustration where people have a desire or have something they're aiming for and they want people to see them a certain way, but behind the scenes it can be really different. Well, that rang true with me. It's stuck in my head. I still look at the cars in Target when I go. But... I think a greater point that he was making and the greater point that we can gain is that God, when he calls us, when he saves us, when he makes us new, he doesn't just want us to be like that. To, that, that shouldn't be our description, that we are broken people trying to put our best foot forward, trying to make everybody understand we're a little bit better off than, you know, whatever. We want, we want to feel secure. We want to feel... It, our version of keeping up with the Joneses might be a little different, but at the end of the day, we would like to have kind of the same house as everybody else and kind of the same vehicle as we pull up next to in Target or whatever. We kind of want that security. And we can feel that angst or that tension if, if something's missing. And we, we certainly don't want people to look at us and notice what's missing. So there can be that loneliness or that brokenness or that utility there and what we need to recognize as children of God is that we are not like the world any longer the world that he saved us out of in other words we are a part of a community but our hope that we have to bring to somebody else isn't hey we're finally all put together come be like me I've got it all together the hope that we have inside of us is yeah I'm broken yeah I don't have it all together but guess what? I met somebody who did, who does have it all together. Somebody who is making me new. Somebody who is giving me hope and joy. Somebody that is giving me purpose and meaning. I have these things in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's what we have to offer, even in this community we've been called to live and minister in. One of the key components 
of doing ministry like that within a community, showing the work of God in you as a broken person to a broken person, what's the difference? The key component is the Holy Spirit who resides in you and who leads you. We have been given a gift, and His name is the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just stop for just a moment because I know that when we in church life begin teaching on the Holy Spirit, if we're not careful, many of us will go to one of two different extremes. We will either go to the extreme of, yes, we're latching on, we're jumping in with both feet, and when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we want to start thinking about and emphasizing all the miraculous things, all the spectacular things we've seen or heard of, and we want to dive deep into that. Or, there's the other extreme in church life, which is to react to the first and say, that's not me. I'm more put together than that. We know a little bit better than that. And we react to that to the extreme where we start to forget who God is. And we miss Him completely. You understand what I'm saying? So there's the extreme of diving into the extravagant in ways that aren't even biblical, and then there's reacting to that so sharply that we miss God for who He is and everything that He wants to be for us. It's such a common thing that when Francis Chan wrote his book on the Holy Spirit, he called it the forgotten God. The God who is forgotten. The Holy Spirit was given to us not just to play in the background. You see, we're, we're a doctrinal people, people here. We know better than to, than to just assume the Holy Spirit is out there somewhere and He doesn't deal with us. But practically speaking, it could be another issue. Practically speaking, we might find ourselves drifting much more than we would like to admit. The Holy Spirit was given to us to interact with us in our lives where we live every day, and he, he didn't come to be God of pieces of our life. He came to be our God. He was given to us to lead us fully and completely. He didn't save us and then say, go do your best, work hard, don't mess up. I'll be in the background here. If you pray, I might bless a little bit of what you're doing, but go do your best. That's not what the Holy Spirit is for. That's not why He was given to us. The Holy Spirit is God Himself who was given to us after Christ returned to heaven. Remember, the disciples were talking to Jesus and Jesus was telling them, he was about to go away and they were upset. And Jesus said, listen, it is better for you that I go away. Why? So I can send the Holy Spirit to you. That was his reason. So the Holy Spirit can come to you. Now, there can be a tendency. I'm just speaking to us where we are. There can be a tendency where, for us as, to look at the Holy Spirit as a doctrine rather than as a living, acting God. Amen? Am I wrong there? We can view the Holy Spirit as somebody who doctrinally exists, that exists in truth. We know the concept, but we don't experience the reality. Jesus said to the Pharisees, 
He said, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are that which speaks of me, the reality, the person. The, the scriptures exist not just, to, not just for our benefit so that we can know more. And not just for our benefit so we can have a better comprehensive theological structure. The, the doctrine was given so that we would go to God. Paul put it a different way. He said, he said, when our gospel came to you, it did not come in word only. It came in power and in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and much assurance. It's easy to get a doctrine of God without experiencing God. Now, I, I, I still want to be careful of both extremes. I know when we hear words like experience, I know somebody's red flag is going up going, okay, don't go too far down that road. But at least start down the road, would you? We're talking about the person of God who's given to us to live with us, abide with us, to empower us, enable us, to give us joy, to give us what we need, to lead us in His will. And I think it's very possible to be incredibly astute doctrinally and to be incredibly infantile in our experience with what we know we can know about God without ever knowing Him. And He can become that forgotten God where we, as people of the book, practically can approach God as if He were Father, Son, and Holy Book. That's not how that book revealed God. The Holy Spirit is real. He's alive. He's active. And He wants to lead us. He wants to be my God. And He wants to be my God in every aspect of my life. He doesn't want me hiding away a portion for myself. Okay, God, You are my God on Sunday morning. You are my God in class. You are my God when I'm with a certain group of people who understands and is on the same level here. But then when I'm over here, yeah, okay, I, I understand that you're God, but practically speaking, it's like he wasn't even there. What about when we make our decisions? What about when we make our decisions? And, and, and again, this, this should affect us in every aspect of our lives. Husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, bosses at work, ministers, elders, deacons, servants, teachers. Do we follow the Holy Spirit and are we led by the Holy Spirit or do we walk by the flesh? Now, I want to rest right here for just a minute. There is a principle in the Scripture where the idea of walking according to the flesh is juxtaposed against walking according to the Spirit. They're diametrically opposed to each other and one is set against to the other one. I think often when we hear this churchy term, but it's a biblical term, Walking according to the flesh, we think immediately of sin. Walking according to the flesh means I sin. I go out and do bad things. And we don't live like that anymore. That's not our lifestyle anymore. We're different now. But as a principle, walking according to the flesh is much more simple than that. The Bible teaches that that which is not done in faith is sin. So walking according to the flesh as opposed to walking according to the Spirit is when I, as a human being, in whatever aspect of my life, begin to rely on myself as if I didn't have a God, relying on myself 
rather than by the leadership, the wisdom, and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's when I rely on me, on my own ingenuity, on my own personality, on my own ability as a leader or as a mover and a shaker, as my ability as somebody who can get things done or has insight, on my ability. That's, by definition, walking by the flesh. Now, God gives us gifts. God puts us in certain situations where He wants us active. He wants us obedient. He wants us moving. He wants us speaking to people. He wants us doing things. We are not a passive people. But He wants us doing these things according to the leadership of the Spirit. Let me give you three quick principles. Number one, found in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, in context, he's talking to Nicodemus about regeneration, about becoming alive to God. But there is a greater context, a greater point that he's making here, a simple point where he's saying there's flesh and there's spirit. And flesh can only give birth to more flesh. Spirit, only the spirit can give spiritual life. So have you got that? The flesh can only give birth to more flesh. Only the Spirit can give spiritual life. Hang on to that. Number two, John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit that gives life. What's the rest of that verse say? The flesh profits nothing. Put those two together for a second. The flesh can only give birth to flesh. Only the Spirit can beget spiritual things. The flesh doesn't profit anything. That tells me that if I live my life in such a way where I spend my life depending on my capabilities, my ingenuity, my street smarts, my personality, all I am capable of doing is producing more flesh but if i submit myself to the holy spirit and say lord you lead me lord you open doors lord you give me wisdom you give me power and i just want to be obedient to do whatever you lead me to do and you walk best you know how led by the holy spirit you're going a completely different direction you're starting from a completely different approach one is a path that leads to futility. The other is the path that God established for us. It's why he sent us the Holy Spirit. I hate this microphone. I hate it so much. Dan calls it the Garth Brooks mic. My dad used to call it the Britney Spears mic. I'll go with Garth Brooks. All right. But, but you, you're, you're with me, aren't you? The, the flesh doesn't profit anything. It can only produce more futility. So what's the natural practical application of this? If I want to accomplish anything that's not going to be deemed worthless, if I truly want to accomplish what God intends for me to accomplish, I've got to walk by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul talks about a time, a day of judgment that's coming where our works are going to be tried in the fire of judgment. And there are, there's going to be wood, hay, and stubble that's burned away, and there's going to be that which is pure that will remain. I'm afraid, even as Christians, there are going to be so many times 
where we think we accomplished something, we were able to get something done, where at the end of the day, it's not going to account for very much because it was done, it, done for our purposes, in our energy, by our ability, as if God wasn't even there. I think this is why, and you can see this in the greater church, I'm speaking of the greater American church here, this is why you can see so many places that are program heavy. They've got so many different things going on. You really could spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week down at the church if you wanted to. And yet you go into some of these places and you struggle to find life. You struggle to find people who are on fire for Christ. You, you struggle sometimes to find even your fit there. Why is that? Why, how is it that we can be so busy with good things that ultimately aren't accomplishing spiritual purposes. Because we can, we can be so broken as to take even the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God gives us and use them in a fleshly way that doesn't accomplish anything. Or we can be humble, we can be broken, and we can wait and allow God to use us according to His purposes. The disciples sat before Jesus scared. Scared out of their minds. You're, what, you're going to leave? You're going to leave us? On the day of Pentecost, they had a different attitude. On, a different, on the day of Pentecost, they were bold. They spoke with boldness. They didn't care who was listening to them. They were no longer hiding in an upper room. By the way, this on the calendar year is supposed to be Pentecost Sunday. I didn't know that until I got up this morning. I didn't realize that was the case. There you go. Pentecost, Holy Spirit. What was the difference between those disciples, those scared disciples on that day and the day of Pentecost? What did Jesus tell them to do? Let's think about it for a second. The disciples, they were full of ideas. They were full of ambition. Even in this conversation, in these chapters, they're telling Jesus, they're asking him, what's, what's the kingdom going to be like? We want to know about the kingdom. Who gets to sit by your right hand and by your left hand? We've got things we want to do. And what are we supposed to do? And Jesus' final instruction to them is what? Go wait. Go sit and wait and pray and wait and pray and wait some more and pray some more until the Spirit of power comes. And when the Holy Spirit came, He upended everything. He filled them in ways that they could not fill themselves. He gave them power and boldness and wisdom and he used them in ways that they could not do for themselves. They had their ideas and their ideas went to the wayside when the Holy Spirit came. They just went out and obeyed. The Holy Spirit is what made all the difference, but the Holy Spirit has become largely the forgotten God in the American church. Like the Chinese pastor who went who came over to visit American churches, he visited around, and when he went back home, the, his congregants asked him, tell us about the American church. What do you see? And his answer was, oh, the many great, wonderful things the Americans can accomplish without God. Ouch. Francis Chan, I'm going to reference him, he said that... Um, his, his view on this is one of the differences between the American church and the global church is that the global church doesn't have the option. They have God or they don't have anything. 
We have resources. We have gifted, educated people among us. We have, we have people who know how to bring together a crowd and to bring together teams and to, to get things accomplished and to bring more people in. We know how to move. We know how to organize. We know how to fundraise. We can get stuff done so that even if God doesn't show up, we still don't have the bottom that the other churches would have because we're at least going to have a certain standard that we can fall to. I think that that falls under the category of forgetting God and who He is and what His purpose is. I believe, I believe this with my whole heart. I believe this with my life, with my family, with the trajectory of our family's life. I believe this with regard to my church. And I love this church. I love you. That's why we're here. That's why we continue to be here. We, we love this church. But I believe if if I try to accomplish something on my own in the flesh, apart from the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it will fail, and it should fail. If we as a church have all these ideas and ambitions and things that we want to accomplish, but we do it without the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it will fail, and it should fail. Not because I want to be a failure, because I want to be led by the Spirit. It doesn't mean we don't have things to do. It doesn't mean there aren't people to reach. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be busy pouring ourselves out for the cause of Christ and for people, but it means that the Holy Spirit leads us, not us relying on the flesh. I need to move on. The second principle that you find, I want to look at the chapter here, four reasons the Holy Spirit came. He came as a change agent. He didn't come to be a passive spirit in the background that we don't know much about, that we don't get to experience, that he's just somehow doctrinally there. Look in verses 8 through 11. First of all, the spirit came into the world in order to convict. This is the first way we interact with God, by the way. Do you realize that? As broken people, this is how we are introduced to God. We are born in our sins born not really wanting God. And so God knows that and He knows how to correct that. He knows how to bring us to a place of grace. So by doing that, He sends a Spirit into the world to do what? Look at verse 8. And when He comes, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin. Well, who's sinning? That's me. That's you. We're sinful. We're broken. We're against God. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. Who's righteous? Well, not me. At least not, not right now. I'm born a sinner, right? So he sends the Holy Spirit to the, into the world to convict us of sin, of righteousness. We have a God who is righteous and we're not. And of judgment. Because that's true, because God's righteous, because we're not, we face judgment. So he, he came into the world to convict. But furthermore, he came to guide us into the truth. He didn't just leave us there. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide. He will guide you into all the truth. So He didn't just come to leave us in our sin. He came to guide us into the truth of Christ, the truth of the cross. He says all truth. He, will, he doesn't leave us alone. Even after He converts us and changes us, He still continues to guide us, to lead us. He's active. He convicts us. He guides us into truth. Look at the end of verse 13. He came to declare. He will 
guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And finally, verse 14, he came to glorify Christ. He will glorify me. By the way, this is one of the ways we can biblically discern between what some, when somebody claims something as the Holy Spirit, this is one of the ways we can discern whether that's true or not because Jesus just said the Holy Spirit didn't come to show himself off. The Holy Spirit came into the world to show Jesus off. Show what Jesus came to do and what he's accomplished for his people. So he came to convict, to guide, to declare, to glorify Christ. And lastly, I want to look at the Holy Spirit as the comforter. John chapter 16 is actually bookended by two different, two different verses that, that actually basically say the same thing. He begins by saying, look at verse 4. He says, I've said these things to you, talking to the disciples, that when their hour comes, you may remember I have told them to you. He's, he's comforting them. He's saying, I'm giving you words of life right now. You're about to go through some tribulation. I'm speaking peace to you. I want you to remember this. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In John 14, as we begin this discussion, Jesus tells his disciples, listen guys, I am not going to leave you as orphans. That's the word. I'm not going to leave you orphans. But I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you in my spirit. He said the comforter will come, the advocate. Those of you who have grown up in church, you may have heard this, this Greek word before, but the word is paraclete. It's a name of the Holy Spirit. It means another one of exactly the same kind. Jesus said, I am, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm sending someone who is just like me. I'm sending you my spirit. You will lack nothing. And I want us, before we go today, I want us to get this idea that the Holy Spirit has given to us to be the God of comfort to his people. The promise here, the reason Jesus is going over and over this with them is to remind them, you are not alone as a child of God. You will not be left alone. Now for some of us, who haven't gone through life very long, maybe, or haven't experienced too many bumps in the road, maybe that's a concept where you go, oh, okay, yeah, that's good to know. But you live life long enough, that concept, he will never leave you. He will never leave you alone. There's coming a day for you, if it hasn't already hit you, that that's going to be everything for you. It's going to be everything. Do you, um, maybe you know this, but you know that when the Greek authors wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it, right? You know that that was kind of their point of emphasis. They didn't have highlighters and they weren't putting things in bold and exclamation marks. If they wanted to emphasize something, it was repeated. And if something was repeated more than once, it was kind of like a, okay, we need to stop, we need to draw back, we need to concentrate on this. We need to just dwell on this for a while. A resident scholar, Stephen Carlson here, might, might um, take up this conversation with you a little more if you want. I won't get too far into the Greek. 
There's a verse, you know, may not know the reference, but you know the verse, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. In the Greek, that's actually a five-fold negative in the text. He's actually saying, listen to this, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. We need to hear that. We need to hear that. It's like God is, is putting me in a chair saying, look me in the eye. I want you to get this, Benjamin. I'm not leaving you ever, 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 ever. I'm not doing it. You're not alone. It's not a Christian platitude. It's the truth we have to hang on to. When the storm comes, this is it. We are not alone. Whatever we feel in the moment, whatever we're experiencing, whatever lies we're being told, we are not alone. The God of comfort has been given to us. There was a, an English pastor named John Rippon who wrote a song that we sing every once in a while here, How Firm a Foundation. I think he understood Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Do you remember that verse? The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Not leaving you. He's not leaving you. Child of God, He is not going to leave you. He's the God of comfort. He's the God of peace. What He so longs for us to experience is this understanding that the fruit of walking with Him is not despair. It's not constant frustration. It's not turmoil of the heart. The fruit of walking with the Spirit, being led by Him, being filled by His power and His wisdom, is love. The fruit of that Spirit is joy. The mark of my life should be peace. Not, not that turmoil that we were saved out of. That's the difference we have. That's the hope we have inside of us. That's what we have to bring to everybody else who's never met Him yet. The spirit of comfort, the God of all comfort, has been given to us as a gift. We don't have to live by our own wits. We can live in humble submission, taking what God gives us and faithfully walking after Him. We don't have to minister by our own abilities and our flesh. We can follow after Him. We can be empowered by Him. What good is having a million dollars in the bank if you never cash a check? You never write a check? What good is having a doctrine of something if it's something we don't practically know anything about? 
I'm not advocating some imbalanced view. I'm not advocating anything of the sort. I'm just asking, can you look at your life and see, you know what, there are ways where the Holy Spirit is leading us and we're following Him. Or can you look at your life and say, boy, there's just some ways where He is not. Where I really am just getting more and more frustrated and because I'm trying to figure this out on my own and I'm trying to make things happen and it's just not working. Maybe we've forgotten why the Spirit came. Maybe we've forgotten that He is the God of all comfort. We can spend seasons in in despair or depression, and I don't want to minimize that, but there are also times where it does come down to being a matter of faith. Do I trust God? Do I take Him at His Word? Do I understand who He is? And am I following Him? Or am I just trying to make this all work the way I want? There's a difference. There's a difference between a legalistic, law-based, ought-to-driven way to live and a life of humble submission as you seek to follow God even if it means waiting. Even if it means following means I stand right here until God moves. Al Mohler's got a message where he titles it Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. You get the point? not about always being active we got to do something we can't just stand there we got to do something I actually told the disciples to stand there until he was ready to move so my encouragement to you is get to know this holy spirit get to know the god that has been given to us because there's power there there's wisdom there there's peace there is such peace there that we desperately need Let's pray. My Father, I want to thank you. Lord, we, we talk about the gifts that you give us. We talk about this gift of the Holy Spirit. How can I keep talking without saying thank you? So Lord, would you continue to make yourself known to us and to make yourself real to us? We love you. We thank You that the Holy Spirit was sent into the world for our comfort, for our... He came to to change us. We thank You that He came to glorify Christ. I pray that we would walk away today with Christ on our hearts. A little more appreciation for who You are and what You've done for us. Do that work in us that only You can do. I pray in Jesus' name.